Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading 2 Corinthians together this fall. It is uh, a letter that Paul wrote because there had been a fracture in the relationship between himself and his friends at the church at Corinth. And so he wrote this letter to foster reconciliation and to foster healing between them and to try to rebuild some trust in his leadership. So we'll pick up where we left off in 2 Corinthians 4. I'll read verses 1 through 12 for us, and you can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, as we talk about this word that we've just read together, as we think about it for the next few minutes, that you um, would meet us. And like we just sang, that you would shine your brightest ray on us, this light that makes even our daylight more lucid and bright that you would shine that light on us and shine it into uh, whatever the dark places that we're experiencing are. Meet us um, here this morning, those of us who have faith and those of us who don't and those of us who aren't sure. Meet those of us who are experiencing uh, happiness and joy and gladness and those of us who are experiencing suffering and trouble and weakness. Meet us all together as your people. And show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I I use Google Photos to uh, store all of my photos. Uh, Maybe some of you do too. I've I've got uh, really thousands and thousands of photos on that. I think just about every picture that I've ever taken digitally. And then hundreds and hundreds of old family pictures that a friend scanned for us. They've all been uploaded too. Uh, And so I'm sure that there are downsides to this. I realize that there are downsides to this. I mean, no doubt every uh, domestic security agency has access to my photos. Probably several foreign governments have access to my photos. 
I know uh, that I am the product that is being bought and sold in this arrangement, but it's free to me, and they make these cute little collages, and they send me memories every morning, you know, that I can look at so it all balances out. This, morning, uh, this morning's memory was from 2011. And uh, honestly, the reason I'm bringing it up is to mention baby pictures. If baby pictures show up in those memories, um, I sometimes have to work really hard when I see them. I have to work really hard to figure out if they are baby pictures of me or baby pictures of my dad <laughs> or baby pictures of two of my three girls. Um, it is really striking how much the essential features of our faces looked so similar shortly after we were born. To see uh, one of us in that stage was really honestly to see all of us. We share the same image. And that idea is at the heart of what Paul writes in that part of the letter that we just read together when he writes in verse 4 that Christ is the image of God. At least part of what he is saying is that if we want to see God, if we want to know God, if we want to know what God is really like, then all we have to do is look at Jesus because the Son bears the image of the Father. As Paul puts it, and this is just about as poetic as Paul ever gets, God gives us the light of the glory of himself. He gives us the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus. And so what I want to say is that as great and as profound as that is of a statement about who Jesus is, and it is great and it is profound, it is also a statement about who we are too. It's about how people like us grow and mature and change. It's a statement about where trouble and suffering fit in our lives. And it's a statement also about how we live with each other in suffering and in trouble. And so hopefully we'll get a sense for all of that as we talk about this together. Jesus bearing the image of God for us is at the heart of our faith. So as always, it's good to ask, why is Paul saying any of this stuff in the first place? And he's saying it because his back is up against the wall. Uh, there are some in Corinth who have been questioning his leadership, and frankly, they're questioning it simply because he is not like them. Uh, they've come to Corinth backed with wealthy and powerful patrons. They've come to Corinth uh, well-versed in all of the admired rhetorical skills of the day and with the ability to use those skills to sway hearts and minds. Um, they are cultivated people, beautifully crafted people, and he is just Paul. You know, he, he supports himself with a side job, for goodness sakes. He's not that good at public speaking. And to top it all off, the worst part is he suffers a lot and he always talks about his suffering. He's always in some kind of horrible scrape. They had come to Corinth with all of the credentials that a cosmopolitan first century city would admire and Paul had come with none of them. So, you know, Paul doesn't need to be adored by his friends at the church at Corinth, but for their sakes, he will not allow himself to be ignored. And so if you've been with us, you might remember that we've been reading really this long digression that he's been writing about himself and his ministry. It started back in chapter two, and in it, this is what Paul has been saying. In a lot of ways, 
This is the very heart of this letter again and again and again. Paul has been saying that his weakness and his trouble and his suffering shouldn't disqualify him as a trusted leader. Because it is precisely in our suffering and trouble and weakness where the glory and grace of God are most clearly seen in this world. These are the places in our lives, in your life and in my life, these are the places that most strongly carry the lingering fragrance of Jesus' life given for the life of the world. And so it's not just that Paul says these things. What he's trying to say is that the the shape of his whole life is what gives him credibility in their lives. So Paul says in verse 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. (laughs) And you know, that uh, that is never far from Paul. He's in this tightrope of a place where he is having to commend himself. He's having to defend himself, even though he doesn't really want to commend himself or defend himself. I mean, nobody ever really wants to do that because it's absolutely the worst. But even in his self-defense, even when he is commending himself, he's happy to remind anyone who will listen that who he really is is not really about who he is or what he brings to the table. He's happy to remind everybody that who he is, he is only by God's mercy. You know, he was out rounding up Christians in a murderous rampage, and he was glad about it. That was the shape of his life. His future was just more violence and more hatred and the slow shriveling of his humanity into an unrecognizable husk. But God ran out and found him there in all of that mess, and forgave him before he even had a chance to ask for forgiveness, before he even knew that was an option. And then God gave him a whole new life and a whole new way to be in the world. That is mercy. And it is never far from Paul. This notion of God's mercy is never far from him. He goes on and on and on about it all of the time. And church, there is a deep connection between recognizing God's wide mercy in our lives and the gratefulness that that bears out in us and the ability to keep on and not lose heart when things get bad. There is a deep connection between recognizing the wideness of God's mercy in our lives And then the gratefulness that that engenders in us and the ability to keep on when things are bad. I don't know the precise emotional dynamics of that. I don't know exactly why it works out that way in the Christian life. I just know that it is completely true. Gratitude for God's mercy sets things right inside a broken self. And it gives people like you and me precisely what we need to not lose heart. Jesus said this uh, same thing a little bit differently when he said that if we have um, been forgiven much, we are enabled to love much. We have to find ourselves in that. And so, you know, Paul thinks, look, that's all I've got, really. This this is all that I have. You know, this story uh, about Jesus suffering and death for the life of the world, that's that's all that I have, and it's more than enough. It doesn't need, as he puts it in verse 2, it doesn't need to be tampered with or messed with. 
I don't know for sure, but I think that he is taking a shot at his accusers here, maybe suggesting that they've taken the good news of Jesus' suffering and death and tried to gussy it up a little bit and smooth it out a little and make it a little more palatable to first century cosmopolitan folks, maybe a little less suffering in it, a little more glory in it. In any case, what Paul does is return to this theme of sincerity that he's hit before so many times. He says, by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone in the sight of God. You know, but of course Paul knows that some people don't believe what he's telling them. You know, it's good to remember, this is what Paul does. This is, this is what he does with his life. He goes to places that he's never been to before, to people that he's never met before. And he tells anyone who will listen to him that a guy named Jesus of Nazareth is the world's true king. <laughs> and that he gave his life so that they can be forgiven and so that the whole world can be reconciled back to God. That's what Paul does. He goes anywhere he can go to, anyone he can go to, and he says, listen, unlike the stories that you have heard your whole life, unlike the stories that you have been told again and again and again from the day that you were born, that the gods can't be trusted, right? That the gods are malicious and capricious, and they have to be manipulated, and they have to be tricked into doing even the smallest thing for you. He says, no, the true story of the world is that the God who made everything loves you and he wants to reconcile you back to himself. And the way that he does it is not by asking you to do anything. You don't do anything. The way that he reconciles you back to himself is by dying for you, giving himself for you. And he tells people that God's self-giving love is what they're made for. And that to follow Jesus in faith is to be slowly changed into the person that they were always created to be. Paul says in other places that every human being is at least dimly aware of this true story. That we somehow know it to be true. We sense it to be true deep in our bones. It rings true. That's why when we see art that echoes that story or when we come across people who echo that story, there's longing in us and hope in us. Even so, Paul says, sometimes people hear that, he knows sometimes they hear that, and then that is discarded. As he puts it uh, in verse 3, sometimes this gospel has a veil over it, but it's not veiled because it isn't true. It's not veiled because anyone really wants to be alone or their own God in this world. It's not not that way because people really want to battle with capricious pretend gods. No, he says it's veiled because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that's part of the true story too. You know, Scripture doesn't talk about this a lot, but where it does, it is really clear that from the beginning there has been this anti-God force. It goes by a lot of names, Satan, the accuser, the devil. And that sole work of that force is to stand against God and his promises to people like us. 
And he does this by getting between God and us, wedging himself inside that relationship, trying to cut us off from him, trying to make us doubt him or hate him or just forget him. And scripture tells us this, (laughs) not so that we'll be afraid, but so that we'll be wary and clear-eyed and wise and prayerful. And the point here, which Paul well knows, is that this veil is nothing for God to pierce. And when he does, when he pierces this veil, it is nothing short of new creation. Paul alludes to Genesis 1 here, probably to Isaiah 9. In verse 6 he says, For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let me take a minute here to try to put some of these pieces together, okay? That sometimes you have to do that when you're reading Paul because he tucks ideas inside of ideas and his mind moves really fast, faster than mine, that's for sure. The big point that Paul is making is this. He's saying, look, I know that you think I'm lame and that I'm not a good leader because I suffer a lot. And because I have obvious weaknesses. And these weaknesses don't exactly commend me to people like you. But as he says in verse 5, I'm telling you, it's not really about me. It is not me that I'm commending to you. In a very real way, this isn't about me at all. It's about the God who shows us what he's really like in Jesus. The God who makes a new creation out of people like us by giving his life for us. I said earlier that Jesus being in the image of God is is a statement about us too. And here's what I meant by that. Paul's just alluded to the Genesis story that we heard as our Old Testament lesson. And that's the story where we find out that there's someone else who bears the image of God. (laughs) That we bear the image of God. That we were created in his image that we were created to reflect who God is, his beauty, his love, his peace, his justice, his goodness and mercy. We were made to reflect God out into the world. It was our vocation to show the whole created order what he's like, but we know how the story went down. Our first parents listened to the voice of the one who got between them and God, and it made them doubt God. And it made them want to be their own little gods. And they rebelled and took the whole created order down with them. So what we need and what the whole world needs is for God to work new creation. (laughs) For God to restore the world to the peace that he created it in. For God to restore us into the image bearers that we were made to be. And church, God does that. He says, let there be light again. And he does it in Jesus. And when we put our faith in Jesus and when we follow him, he slowly begins to restore his image in us. And he remakes us into the humans that we were meant to be. And I'm telling you, this is the best thing that any of us will hear today or any day of our lives. To have this life, this new creation, this new, newly remade life, To have it and to know it 
It is like Jesus calls the, the pearl of great price. Paul calls it a treasure to have this life. But we have this treasure, he says, in jars of clay, thin, often unremarkable, fragile, easily and often broken or damaged. I'm talking, of course, about the jars of clay that he's referring to, but the point is that that feels a lot like the life we live in this world. Often broken and damaged, vulnerable. And we have this life in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The very shape of our lives, which inevitably includes suffering and trouble and weakness, are themselves pointer to the power of God to make everything new again. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Church, how could this be? <laughs> how can it be that people who experience all of these things don't lose heart? I, mean, I have no idea what it is that you feel in your life right now that feels like per it's perplexing, that feels like you have been struck down, but how can it be that we can experience these things and not lose heart? Because we know that the God of surpassing power is for us. Because we know that the God of new creation is through his spirit working overtime in people like us. And because we know that our trouble and our suffering are not for nothing. They are in the holy and divine scandal of how God works in the world, pointers to his life. As Paul says it, we are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be man made manifest in our bodies. Our trouble, our suffering, our weakness, they are not meaningless. They are wrapped up in our commission for the life of the world. And so our steadfastness in suffering and our steadfastness in trouble is an eloquent witness to Jesus and to his life given for the life of this broken world. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would uh, somehow <laughs> in ways that words said uh, and heard never can that you would somehow impress the truth of these things on us. That even uh, in our suffering and trouble, we are not forsaken. And we're not, we're not cast down. And we're not forgotten. Father, help us to believe that that is true. And to live into that truth. That, that like Jesus, the one we follow, we, we live that same kind of life first suffering and then glory. Father, help us to be a people who don't smooth over that, who don't try to pretend that isn't true of us, but who seek you in it and abide in you in it so that we can be a people through whom you can love this broken world.
And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.